With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, you know, there are people who who think that, like Sarah and David, they have they are the official pontifical oracular authority on all things legal here at the Dispatch, and I just want to say that that is a that is a passel of lies. Um, I cede no such territory to them. Um, and so in a brilliant pincer move, counter move, I've decided to invite, and also part of my longstanding, totally unplanned policy of like getting various department heads, um, and sub department heads, um, on here from AI, I've got my friend and colleague, Adam White to come on here and talk, um, all sorts of law type stuff. Um, and, uh, you run the constitutional center, whatchamacallit thing at the American Enterprise Institute, correct? Indeed, I do. Thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Jonah. But you are a part of, you are, you share with me, um, we are both bannermen of, of House Levin. So yeah, we're, not... we're, we're serfs working the fields, uh, that he, he owns, uh, but, but he allows me, uh, to oversee a project called the Center for American Constitutional Government. So there you go. So, um, I don't know if you know this, but I, I just, I, whenever Yuval comes up, I always kind of chuckle a little bit because, you know, his brother is a commercial airline pilot and just the image of Yuval in a pilot's uniform. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> for whatever reason, just always makes me laugh. Yeah. And it's totally unfair. And I have no idea if his brother looks like Yuval at all or anything like that. But I just, I love the idea of like Yuval getting on the, on the loudspeaker and being like, our flight time today is, you know, <laughs> I just think it's funny for some reason. I, 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 I think that's great. I think that has to be a future episode of The Remnant when you actually invite the brother on. Oh, that's a great um, idea. Yeah. And I think you've all should issue announcements saying, you know, we know you have a lot of options in choosing a think tank. And we're grateful for uh, your choosing <laughs> AEI today. Thanks for thinking with us. All right. So um, let's start with things in the news type thing. Um, yeah. Uh, there was this hearing, um, circuit court hearing to hear Donald Trump's appeal of Judge Chutkin's ruling that Trump was not, did not have blanket immunity to do whatever he wanted. And, mm -hmm. um, the thing that made all the headlines was, can the president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate his political opponents? Yeah. Um, and we got a remarkably reluctance one might almost say concerningly nuanced response on all that um so big picture and small picture what did you make of the whole thing 
Well, boy, I guess I'm relieved that they're thinking through their uh, insanely broad arguments in advance. Uh-huh. You know, Jonah, it's funny, actually, the, the argument, uh, I haven't listened to it, just read the reports. But remember a few years ago, you and I used, used to bat around the line, uh, the best way to take Trump isn't seriously or literally, but hypothetically. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and, and this seems the high watermark of yeah. that. And again, to be fair to, to Trump's counsel, it's not as though he walked into court and led with this. The judge asked the obvious sort of question, um, asking about the limiting principle of it all. Remember during the Obamacare litigation, we used to always talk about limiting principles and mm-hmm. how far could the administration go in forcing us to eat broccoli or whatever. Um, this is the obvious question. How far does the categorical immunity argument go? And like you said, at least they thought it through in advance. They, they did say there are there are bumpers on all of this. That's what the impeachment process is for. In, in a weird way, I almost kind of admire their confidence to go all in on the argument and say, yes, actually, the president could could do this. I'm su- surprised that, that the but lawyer... Just to be clear, he says they could do it, but they'd have to impeach him first. Have to impeach it first. That's right. right. The president, sorry, they meaning the president could claim immunity all the way through that until the point where he's impeached and removed. Mm-hmm. And and in a way, I'm, I, I wonder if, because again, I haven't listened to the full argument yet, I wonder if counsel had an opportunity to maybe elaborate the point a little bit more and, and say, you know, that, that it's implausible to think this would ever come up. Um, maybe ask why would the president do this sort of thing? Um, but to just go with it and say, oh yeah, if that actually and that that nightmare scenario actually happened, we do have guardrails: their impeachment and removal, but not criminal prosecution. I think that's wrong. Uh, but but at least they're making a logically consistent and coherent argument. Not maybe coherent in other ways, but logically coherent. So I have a lawyer friend. Um, you'd like him. You might know him, but I don't want to out him here. Okay. But, uh, I see him at the cigar shop often, and yeah. I often pick his brain. Yeah, and lawyers are the best, so he's probably great. And uh, he said he had a good idea, tongue in cheek, but he was like, okay, if this is Trump's position, uh, Biden should announce that pending this ruling, and if it goes the way Trump wants, he's you'll give a standing order to SEAL Team 6 to assassinate Donald Trump. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> which just sort of puts it in a little bit in highlight, you know, um, again, tongue in cheek, but like, this is one of these areas where I both admire you people with your fancy suits and belts and have real contempt for you people with yeah. your fancy suits and belts, because this whole idea of, are we really going to have this debate about whether or not the president can assassinate his political opponents um, yeah. is, it gets into the law is an ass territory. Yeah. Yeah. And and so first of all, Jonah, what do you mean, you people? Uh, second <laughs> of all, you know, to, uh, as, as you know, Tocqueville said a long, long time ago that even in the 1830s, scarcely a political issue arises that doesn't eventually become a, a, a lawsuit. And the problem with that is that legal argument le- is very different from political argument. And the constitutional arguments in lawsuits are just inherently different from the constitutional dialogue that we have as functioning human beings outside of court. And because these issues that we have now are all, they all get channeled into lawsuits and in many ways get channeled into lawsuits from the very outset, not in this case, but elsewhere, any political issue immediately becomes a lawsuit. It means that all of our constitutional dialogue in this country immediately gets channeled into legal style arguments, which are sweeping, categorical, um, pedantic, 
unrealistic. And there's a place for that. It's called court. And of course, again, that's where we are. We're here in court. But what worries me even more than the fact that these arguments are being made in court is that the rest of the country seems incapable of having constitutional arguments that aren't all filtered into uh, litigation style right. legalisms. Um, it's, it's a problem when lawyers are making those arguments, but they're lawyers. It's a bigger problem when all the non-lawyers make, the, make arguments in that style. And the fact that all of us very quickly resort to legalistic style burdens of proofs and sweeping categorical arguments and assuming that everything has to follow to its logical conclusion, uh, that in and of itself really deforms uh, constitutional um, argument and debate in this country. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think is kind of amazing about this position that you cannot try a president for committing crimes, I mean, like serious crimes, um, unless you impeach and remove them first, is we also heard from Trump's lawyers in two impeachments, or particularly in the second impeachment, that, first of all, you don't need to impeach him because there, he can face criminal legal penalties later. Yeah. And two, that you shouldn't impeach him when he only has days left on his presidency um, because you can't impeach someone when they're not going to be in office anymore. And yeah. now, if we actually held to this theory that you can't try someone for crimes unless they're impeached and removed first, means that in the last week or so of a presidency, you can just, it, it can be like, you know, um, Michael Corleone taking out all his enemies in Godfather, right? You could even kill a bunch of members of Congress so they can't get a quorum yeah. for um, impeachment. Uh, and like, that can't be the actual way our system is supposed to work. No, it can't. And, and this brings us back to the theme we've touched on in the past about Republican virtue, and maybe we can delve into that. But, but I, I want to add one more argument to, or one more question to your stack of contradictions here. It's one I've been thinking about this morning and thinking about back about those, these oral arguments. We have gone through now years of hearing debates about whether a president can pardon himself or not, right? The, the President Trump and, and his, his advocates arguing that, yeah, of course, a president can pardon himself. And there's a serious constitutional argument in favor of that. But it's funny how President Trump seems to think a president can self-pardon, but not, in a sense, self-prosecute. Um, mm -hmm. By the way, it works the other direction, too. Isn't, I wonder how many people who say a president cannot pardon himself also say that somehow he can't prosecute, his, his administration can't prosecute him. Um, I'm not saying those two arguments are logically equivalent, but I do think it is interesting that, that we talk a lot about self-pardons, a lot about, in effect, self-prosecution, um, but some of those arguments have, have operated on parallel tracks without anybody maybe pointing from one track to the other. Right, I mean, like, Trump's position is, is that presidents basically can't commit crimes. No. Why should the issue of self-pardoning even ever come up? Because, yeah, exactly. you know, um, exactly. it's like one hand clapping kind of thing. All right. So what is your actual position on immunity, uh, official acts versus ministerial acts or whatever, all this gobbledygook? Yeah. You know, this claim that the, if my memory is right, the claim that presidents are immune from criminal prosecution basically stems from these, this, the OLC rulings on civil lawsuits and stuff like that. It is not exactly like a settled constitutional principle, is it? No, no, it's not. It's implicit. I think it's maybe at best implicit. Again, the president is the one who's there to take care of the laws are faithfully executed. He has the executive power, not the Justice Department. The Justice Department. Uh, you know, prosecutes on behalf of the president, in a sense. Um, and so in that sense, it makes it makes sense 
that a president wouldn't be prosecuted. Um, but it's, there's no inherent constitutional rule against it. No pres, you know, um, it's, it's, it's at best implicit. Now, to your original question, what, um, what are the lines here? I think we all can say there's a core set of presidential powers where the president is operating as the executive. And for that, maybe it's good to have prudential rules against immunity, or sorry, in favor of immunity, so that presidents can execute the laws faithfully in their best, you know, they're, they're in, their, in good faith without having to worry that a future administration is going to turn a reasonable disagreement into a criminal prosecution. I get mm. that. That makes sense. Um, also, I understand why courts might like immunity, because then they're not going to get sucked into litigation around exe- what's essentially executive branch arguments from one administration to the next. I get that. And we all can understand that at the other end of the spectrum are times when a president isn't really operating as a president, but as a private citizen, as a political candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in those, he absolutely should not get immunity. And we can even say somewhere in the middle, maybe the line is hard to draw. Maybe we should err on the side of immunity to avoid um, marginal lawsuits about these things. But I just, looking at what President Trump did around January 6th, I think it requires a willing suspension of disbelief to say he was operating in any capacity other than Donald Trump candidate. And the, to the extent that he was, he, he and his, his supporters say, well, he was actually trying to snoop, you know, snoop out uh, election fraud. I just think at this point, even then, but at this point, this requires a willing suspension of any reasonable disbelief. Um, yeah, I'm, not, I'm with you on this. I think there's a, there's a balancing test to be found somewhere in all of this stuff, right? And, and I get why you don't want presidents harassed with stupid, you don't want to do to presidents what they like did to Tom DeLay, right? Where like one county guy in Austin, district attorney, harassed him for like 10 years, made his life miserable, and it was kind of a bogus thing. I'm not saying Tom DeLay is a great guy. I'm just saying you don't want that kind of stuff. But at the same time, trying to steal an election seems pretty much in the wheelhouse of the kinds of things that you shouldn't like I loved in the I don't know if you saw it, but in the Georgia case, mm-hmm. Trump's lawyers said that he had not had fair warning that it was illegal to steal an election. And so therefore, you cannot prosecute him for trying to steal an election because he just he just didn't know. Yeah. Um, and like, I guess this part of my problem with all of this is that that I had this argument with my friend Charlie Cook back when. Trump was contesting all of these elections. We're going to court constantly contesting all the stuff. Yeah. And Charlie, like a lot of people, had a very defensible position, which is you need to let the process play out. That was Liz Cheney's position prior January 6th, is people let, that, let them have their day in court. That was Mitch McConnell's position, let them have their day in court and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't work well <laughs> in, in an absence of Republican virtue. Yeah. If the lawyers working for Trump were thought they actually had real facts on their side, that would be one thing. But they clearly were arguing in court for the publicity value outside the court to make it seem as if there was a real case. And that just feels unethical. And it feels like an example of the broader problem of of our system being set up that assumes good faith by leaders 
that they will they they have patriotic deference to the good of the system that is just so utterly lacking in Trump and Trump world. Yeah, I can't help but point out they're they're making that argument outside of court and also outside of the Four Seasons Garden Center, which was That's very right. nice. Yeah, I, yeah. Now, I will very gleefully um, point out that when all that litigation started right after the last election, I very much did not agree that we should all just wait for the process to play out. I wrote a piece for our friends at the Bulwark saying, you just have to real, we just have to accept that President Trump will litigate this like a real estate bankruptcy, and he will reach for every argument like a broken, like a broken beer bottle in a bar fight. And none of us should pretend that the process is going to play out in a healthy, legitimate way. Um, and we, we, we learned the hard way. And so this gets to the ethics of some of this. And I, yeah. I, I find legal ethics weirdly fascinating and painful. Sort of like when you had, remember when you had a loose tooth and you just couldn't help but play with it, even though it hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this guy's sour. Uh, I was listening. He's, he was Trump's lawyer yesterday who was giving the qualified maybe yes kind of answer about assassinating your political opponents. I was listening to the Lawfare podcast to prepare for this august conversation I'm having mm -hmm. now. And there was apparently, there's a debate among their viewer, their listeners, and among their members about whether or not Sauer was doing good lawyering or not. And the argument broke down, I don't want to ascribe sides to it, but basically the argument broke down was, uh, he's making crazy stupid arguments and he knows he's going to lose, that's bad lawyering. And, um, and the other side was, no, actually, he's making arguments that trigger all sorts of delays in the process. And that's what Trump needs more than anything. That's what his client needs more than anything else is delays in the process. And so making these bad arguments that will lose will extend the process. And, and he was doing the best job imaginable of defending bad positions. What, what, what say you about either of those? Uh, John Sauer is a law school classmate of mine. He's a very, very smart lawyer. And I would be shocked if he was making arguments that he knew were losing, lo losers, um, for the sake of some sort of extra legal interests. I just, I don't believe it. Who knows, but I don't believe it. I think he was taking the, the arguments at hand and making a logically coherent argument. And yes, to the extent the, 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 the the slippery slope of the argument is extremely disturbing. Uh, his argument was what it was. It was that we have all these other auxiliary precautions around prosecution to actually remedy that kind of situation. I don't agree with the argument, but I just, I, I don't believe that John Sauer was like cynically making losing arguments for the sake of uh, for out, uh, external political interests. Well, I mean, uh, making, I, I, I don't want to mischaracterize the criticism of him from other people, but like, that's the way it sounded to me was that the, the long-term legal strategy for Trump is to push back these trial dates till after the election, and then he can pardon himself, right? Yeah. Um, and and making this, I mean, like, there's this, I can't remember which court, I can't remember if it was the, this one yesterday or the Georgia one, but there's also this argument that that impeachment, since he was, he was tried for impeachment, that trying him criminally would be double jeopardy. Yeah. Which is the dumbest, I mean, like, we've heard during all impeachments, people say, you know, President's not above law. It's not below law. This is a political process. This isn't a criminal trial. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. N now they want to say it's a criminal trial. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I wrote about this at the time of the, of, of the impeachments that it's a great mistake to to treat impeachment as a quasi criminal process. It's not. It's it's more than normal ordinary politics, um, but it's not a criminal process. Um, 
And it's a mistake to, to try to confuse those things. You said a while ago, Johnny, you, you, you raised sort of the ethical side of this, mm-hmm. not just for the lawyers, but for the president. And I, and I, I do want to circle back to that, 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 of course, our system presumes that ambitious politicians are going to push the boundaries of their power um, and that ambition is going to counteract ambition. And that's why we have a separation of powers and we don't assume that all men in government are angels and so on. Um, but I think the point we've reached now just reflects the, the, the danger of reading those parts of Madison and the Federalist, but not all the other parts where they really did worry about Republican virtue. Or maybe not worry, but they, they made both explicit and implicit that the system in all three branches of it really depended first and foremost on certain virtues. It might be different from one branch to the next, but each branch for its own operation requires certain virtues and you need that in the people themselves. And yeah, you might, it might ebb and flow in certain places and certain times, um, and, but you need it somewhere to sort of counteract the others. And we, our system doesn't actually work when it is just a hellscape of all against all without any kind of, of self-restraint and, and a treating, treating of government power simply as power and not as a burden or responsibility by the one wielding that power. Uh, and here we are. Yeah, so like, I, I'm fairly confident that you would not be game to take Trump on as a client in all of this, <laughs> no. right? No. And I understand everyone has the right to counsel, but they don't have the right to a specific lawyer, right? Yeah. And that's why I brought up the, the original disputes, the election disputes that Trump brought, you know, after the election, mm-hmm. or I was reading Liz Cheney's book and, you know, and, and Mike Johnson was making factual misrepresentations to the court in the amicus brief about the Texas uh, dispute. Mm-hmm. It just seems to me that, that, that there should be more ethical sanction um, for lawyers who are technically, they're not breaking the law, but they, they are defending someone who is who is deliberately exploiting the good faith of the system that the system replies upon in bad faith. And um, I know no one's going to listen to me on this, but that's just sort of how I, I, I feel about it. Well, if you if you think that I'm going to start knocking my lawyer friends, you've clearly never heard of Honor Among Thieves. So let me uh-huh. just say that up front. Um, I, again, there are easy cases, there are hard cases. And in the middle, we probably should err on the side of of letting lawyers make the most aggressive arguments possible uh, in, in, in defense of their clients. And that's just a fundamental principle of our legal system. That's right. I, and so I don't like it when lawyers get sanctioned um, on political grounds. Um, the, of course, there's now the prosecution of John Eastman and others, which I put in a different category, mm-hmm. um, where they, they did simply cross the line. Um, but no, I think we should be glad that what lawyers are willing to make strong arguments and, and every available reasonable argument and even the long shot ones. Um, but I, I, I do worry that again, when all political issues become legal, become litigation and everybody is filing briefs and they're filing them in a hurry, you're going to, the, the quality of legal argument in these briefs, it's hard for me to imagine it, it just not going down as everything becomes that much more, uh, cavalier. I don't know. I don't litigate anymore. I don't read nearly as many legal briefs as I used to, um, but I'm not surprised that that mistakes slip into these briefs. 
Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's broaden out for a second. Um, there's a robust debate um, that I am squarely in the middle of. Not, I, I, I'm not saying I'm not in the middle of people influential in the debate. I mean, I'm like, I have sympathy for both argue, both sides about whether or not the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment can be used, invoked to prohibit Donald Trump from being on the ballot, that it yeah. is self-executing. Um, I found the William, to the extent I could understand all the big words, the William Bode, uh, Paul Stokes, uh, law review piece on this, yep. pretty persuasive. I thought David French did an admirable job in the New York Times the other day on this. At the same time, I don't really believe that politically or even constitutionally self-enforcing is a thing yeah. um, in the way that people need it to be for this thing. So wh where do you come down on it? I might be misremembering, but I think a couple of years ago I was on the show. And I referred to January 6th as an insurrection. And I think, mm -hmm. I might be misremembering, but I think I did. And I think you might have said, well, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't jump into that word. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I said, well, it might mean different things in different places. Um, but I, I'm not afraid at all to use the word insurrection. I think it was more than just a riot. Um, so that, let me just start with that. Okay. But then when it comes to the 14th Amendment and actually litigating it in court, 
I become very, very skeptical and or wary. And this gets back to my point about taking constitutional argument and immediately filtering it into lawsuits and litigation and legalisms. Because it's one thing for me as a, as a voter um, to, to ask myself, can I vote for this candidate? I think he or she engaged in insurrection or gave aid or comfort to an insurrection. That's what, and I think actually, all, sadly, all citizens now have to at least ask that, themselves that question. It's quite another thing, though, to say that the meaning of the word insurrection is so clear in the Constitution and that what happened, as a matter of fact, is so clearly a, a, an insurrection within the meaning of the 14th Amendment. And that what President Trump did in his words is so clearly giving aid and comfort to an insurrection that a secretary of state or a state Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court can take a presidential candidate off a ballot or, or declare him uh, ineligible to be president. It's that extra step where I get off the bus. I, I um, Will Bode, a friend of mine, great lawyer, great legal thinker. We've spent a lot of time debating other issues over the years. And Michael Stokes-Paulson, also great, great legal scholar. I just don't agree with them that the words so clearly mean what they mean, uh, or what, 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 what Bode and Paulson say they mean, that it clearly points to an easy solution here, an easy judicial solution. Um, but let me just add to that, that because we're now arguing all of this in terms of what should the courts do? Is it anti-democratic for the courts to declare Trump ineligible? That I, I, I feel like the public is in a way sidestepping the harder issue, which mm -hmm. is what's the duty of a citizen? Right. In, and, and, and how should we bring this issue alongside others um, in trying to decide ultimately who to cast a ballot for? I mean, again, to, to, to invoke our, our boss, Yuval Levin, um, the question, even though the constitutional words are the same, the question and the task at hand is different for a court versus uh, an executive versus a legislature versus a voter. And we shouldn't mistake the, the litigation version of this debate for the version that we all should be asking ourselves. Let me first back up and just say, look, I agree with you. I think part of the problem is it's one of these really terrible catch-22s where if we had the right citizen, if, if the citizenry had the right reaction to January 6th, it wouldn't get to the courts in the first place because he would go, his, 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 his candidacy would go nowhere. You know, the party wouldn't let him on the ballot. Voters wouldn't give him the time of day. But because you have the popular, pro, the populism problem, it gets pushed into the courts. I, I agree oh, with wait, that. Wait, wait, let me cut you off there. Hold on a second. I, like I said, I think it was clearly an insurrection and I would vote accordingly. Another part of the job for, for us as citizens is to accept that even thinking about it non-legalistically, it's still a hard legal and factual question. And so it might not be that the right answer is for the public to disavow Trump as a candidate on the basis of the 14th Amendment. Maybe that wasn't what you're saying, but- No, no, that's, that's, not, my, that's not really my point. My point okay, is, yeah. is like, let's just put it this way. If the revulsion that rank and file Republicans and Republican leaders had to January 6th, yeah. that they had on January 6th, on January 7th and January 8th, had not dissipated, it wouldn't matter whether it was an insurrection or not, because whatever it passed that legal or constitutional threshold question, it passed the threshold question of it was really bad. Yeah. <laughs> and that should be enough. Right. Yeah. He's a sore loser. He didn't win. He lied about the election being stolen. That should be it. Right. And yeah. 
Um, and so it shouldn't have to get to these angels on ahead of a pin thing about Section 3 and all that. Yep. But when you say anti-democratic, I just want to push back a little bit. First of all, why should I give a rat's ass if the Supreme Court does something that's, I would say, non-democratic right, or undemocratic? The courts are supposed to be non-democratic in, in very fundamental kinds of ways. And they do non-democratic things all the friggin' time. Now, mm-hmm. you can make a case that they're actually, by keeping this guy off the ballot, they would be working to help democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a, that gets into punditry, right? I just mean, like, as a matter of first principles, you can't say, well, this decision from the Supreme Court is undemocratic and therefore wrong, because we want it to be yeah. undemocratic all the time. Correct, correct. And you could even, I mean... Surely some argue that the 14th Amendment itself is the product of democracy and therefore to uphold the 14th Amendment here is, is as they see it, is, the, is, is itself pro-democracy. I totally get that. I mean, there's all kinds of pro-democratic arguments um, in favor of declaring President Trump disqualified. Um, all I'm saying is that so often, not all the time, but so often the Supreme Court's mistakes and oversteps and overreaches have come when it took vague constitutional text and suddenly enforced it in a very specific way to take mm-hmm. choices away from the more democratically accountable parts of government. Uh, we saw that the whole history of the 14th Amendment for the last century has been courts uh, invoking the 14th Amendment to take issues away from Congress or away from state legislatures um, and, and, and so on. And so it, all I'm saying is that, you know, and I don't think this is particularly controversial, but to declare, to summarily declare a presidential candidate, I guess the leading presidential candidate, ineligible for the ballot on heavily contested grounds would be, in at least one major sense, anti-democratic. In the sense that it would it would it would take away from the voters uh, the, the, the 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 power to choose. In a way, it would relieve the voters of their duty to actually choose and make the right choice. Um, but 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 in that's all I'm saying is in that sense, it's anti-democratic. Yeah, I don't think that's the end. I don't think that's the the end all be all. We shouldn't ask ourselves, well, what's the democratic outcome and follow? We should ask two questions. One, what does the 14th Amendment mean as best as we can tell? And two, what's the role of the court in deciding a case under the 14th Amendment in light of either clear or vague legal language? That's the hard question. Not to go all Alexander Hamilton on you, but in Federal 78, where Hamilton sketches out judicial review and says, of course, if a law violates, if a statute violates the Constitution, um, then the Constitution stands and the law must fall. But then he goes on to explain that, you know, you're going to have to ask yourself, what's a reasonable way to read the statute? Can you keep it? Um, if you read it one way, will you save it from unconstitutionality? Can you do that reasonably? Is there any way to reconcile these things? What he was saying was, in the case of judicial review of statutes, the hardest choices judges have to make are not constitutional or unconstitutional, but questions of reasonableness in the middle of that. Am I being unreasonable in too narrowly or too broadly reading a statute? That's the hardest choices a judge has to make, even in ordinary cases. Um, and, and obviously, this is not a case of striking down a statute. But again, the court has to ask themselves, each justice has to ask himself or herself, what do I think the 14th Amendment means? What do I think the facts at hand are? And in light of that and my certainty or lack of certainty, how do I then decide a case that's going to have these significant uh, effects of taking somebody off of a ballot? Right. Since 
you kind of teed it up pretty easily, pretty well for me here. Um, part of your day job is being like Supreme Court watcher, Supreme Court explainer, Supreme Court whisperer. And um, the my impression from talking to legal type people is that Justice Roberts would very much like the Trump era to go away, uh, which does not mean there's he's going to rule specifically one way or another way, because that's just not how it necessarily does work or should work. But um, how do you think the Supreme Court, and then we'll get to the broader, just sort of the court in general, but like, how do you think the Supreme Court, when it inevitably gets both the 14th Amendment stuff, but also the immunity stuff, how do you think it's going to go? I found uh, in this town the easiest and fastest way to alienate all my friends and enemies is to say something nice about uh -huh. Chief Justice John Roberts. Um, it's the one thing that everybody agrees on, is seems to agree on, is that he's like a cynical, tactical um, politician. And I don't, I, I, I tend not to agree with that. I, I tend to take him at face value and I like a lot of his work. Um, there is the happy accident that this case, the 14th Amendment case might get to the Supreme Court right around the same time yeah. as the immunity issues. Um, and as we've described, I think the arguments for the court denying, disclaiming presidential immunity here seem pretty strong. The arguments, for, as I see it, the arguments for the court not embracing the 14th Amendment argument here are also pretty strong. So we might wind up with a, the court deciding those cases on the same day or close to them. And one cuts um, in Trump's favor on the 14th Amendment, one tr cuts against Trump on immunity. And that would be like a nice, happy conclusion. I don't think any of the justices are seeing it in those, sort of, in those terms, although obviously they're aware of the context. I think my sense of the, just my instincts about the justices is that a majority of them will be skeptical of the 14th Amendment argument for the same reason that I'm skeptical of it. But again, that's, I guess, awfully convenient um, to assume that the justices will wind up where I am on it. But so far, I do think that seems the most likely outcome on the 14th Amendment, given the justices, their temperaments, their writings, that they're going to be wary of ascribing this much certainty to that 14th Amendment provision uh, in this case. So I'll be surprised if the, if the justices um, uphold the 14th Amendment argument out of, the, out of Colorado. I'll also be surprised, to say the least, if they embrace President Trump's theory of immunity or even any immunity, a theory of presidential immunity that actually reaches what President Trump did here. Yeah. I mean, so I know court watchers assiduously deny that, and the court itself denies that vote trading happens or any of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And I'm inclined to believe that's true as a matter of explicit you know, I'll give you this vote if you give me that vote. I, 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 I'm very skeptical that kind of thing happens um, at all. At the same time, mm -hmm. I know we don't want Supreme Court justices or chief justices to be politicians and whatnot, but you can see, given the historic nature of all of this, an institutionalist's argument for Roberts to do all he could to get 9-0 on against the immunity stuff and nine zero against the um 14th amendment stuff and yeah I, that would not bother me like uh that seems to me to be a responsible statesman-like thing to try to do as long as you do it within the guardrails yeah. right i mean you can't just it, it has to be a defensible position for everybody um 
Yeah. Do you disagree with that? Or is that, I mean, like, are you not allowed to say that because you'll get kicked out of all the right clubs about how, you know, it has to be, let justice prevail, though the heavens may fall? Yeah. <laughs> I, maybe, Jonah, for this, it's more important not to be a court watcher, but a court litigator watcher. It all depends on how broadly the lawyers stake their claims in these cases. And they might do the justices a favor. If President Trump marches into court with this extremely broad version of immunity, he might well succeed in getting nine justices mm -hmm. to rule against him. Same thing with the Colorado decision. They, to what I've seen so far out of the Colorado opinion and the arguments around it, they have a extremely broad and malleable view of the 14th Amendment that anybody can see would create just a hellscape of future litigation around alleged insurrections. Nothing approach, you know, hard to imagine anything approaching January 6th, but you're going to, you're already seeing arguments that, oh, what's happening at the border is an insurrection. And, you know, people argue that you know, the Black Lives Matter protests and when they got violent were, were an insurrection. And so if, if the defenders of the Colorado decision make their arguments as sweepingly and as malleably as they have so far, they might well get a nine nothing decision. And when they, when the litigants do make arguments that broad, they make the j chief justice's job easier and being able to uh, write an opinion that can attack a very narrow issue, categorical mm -hmm. immunity, broad view of the 14th Amendment, and reject it and then move on. And so the litigants themselves might make Chief Justice Roberts's job uh, a lot easier. Yeah, Kevin Williamson still had the best line about the difference between the Black Lives Matter riots and the January 6th riot. He says, there's just a big difference between a coup d'etat and a coup de target. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, hey, well, one more thing on this, by the way, I, I, I seem to recall, I could be wrong, but in thinking about insurrection, I'm pretty sure that when Jefferson Davis wrote his memoir after the Civil War, um, uh, that he, devo he devoted a pretty significant chunk of it, maybe even, even, even a chapter, to arguing why the Civil War was not itself an insurrection. Um, of course, he had to put that in the book, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, because he had to. Everybody knew it was an insurrection. I, right. you, could, you could write the 14th Amendment in its own time and know exactly what we're talking about. But then to let 150 years pass, we ought to be a little bit, a little, have a little bit of humility in, in our confidence about what exactly it means as a matter of principle and as a matter of fact. Yeah, I mean, that, that cuts both ways, I think, because on the one hand, you know, the people who say, oh, you need a judicial process, um, you need due process to decide whether someone's an insurrectionist. Well, they didn't, after the Civil War, it was like, if you were a member of the Confederate Army, you were an insurrectionist. And so, like, they didn't have trials for each person. That was part of the reason they put that thing in the 14th Amendment in the first place. Yeah. On the flip side, it was really easy to tell who the insurrectionists were because they wore the uniform, right? Yeah. And so it cuts, it kind of cuts both ways. But I don't think you need due process to say someone's an insurrectionist. Yeah. But you need some other really glaringly obvious indicator, indicia, as you people might say, yeah. that uh, um, that tips the game off. And and that's sort of where this gets messy. I mean, it is called the rebel yell. I mean, right. it's, it's right there in the name. I, we should I mean, we don't need to dwell on it, but I just want to say the question about whether the president is an officer within the meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment—that's actually a serious legal argument. Um, it's much more. I think it's actually a much more serious legal argument than we might think at first instinct. Like, a, in one sense, of course, the president is an officer, but in the context of the Fourteenth Amendment, the way it's written, the way it's 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 structured, that's actually a, a very interesting argument. And, and Professor Kevin Lash. Um, another great scholar of the 14th Amendment has an interesting article about this. I think he might have turned it into a New York Times op-ed recently. Yeah, David makes, mentions it in his defense of the taking them off the ballot thing. And I, 
and this is borrowing a, a schema from Sarah, but like my position on this is like I have very little patience for people who have like I shouldn't say little patience because a lot of them are my friends. I have very little patience for the argument that it's just transparently obvious that this 14th Amendment thing is dumb and stupid and outrageous. And mm-hmm. I have very little patience for the argument that it's a slam dunk, totally persuasive on every count. Although I got to say, David's case was pretty good. Um, but because to me, it's, and this is the point that Sarah made, it's like a lot of things in legal stuff, you have this checklist of criteria. And okay, so it's this one with 52% of the, you know, and this one, it's right, but just over the line. And then, so then you add them all up and it really doesn't feel like this overwhelming case because each subsidiary point, you barely won the argument on it. And the other side had a good counter argument. And so like, I think on the officer thing, you know, it came up in the debates about the 14th Amendment and they, the guys who were debating it said it covered the president. Um, that seems a useful data point. Um, but I'm with you. It's, it, we shouldn't be having the friggin' argument is the real point. <laughs> you know? yeah. And just at risk of repeating myself one more time, as we're all talking about what the court should do and what I get impatient with is all of us sort of assuming this is the only argument. And, you know, once the court issues its decision, we can all sort of, you know, wash our hands of it. And incidentally, by the way, um, I hope everybody likes their 14th Amendment arguments, because regardless of what the Roberts court actually decides, if President Trump uh, wins re- wins election to be once again, President Trump, we're going to spend all of December next year listening to arguments about whether the Congress has an independent duty. Um, each member of Congress has an independent duty separate from the Supreme Court to refuse to count an electoral vote for President Trump because he's ineligible. I mean, the arguments we're having around the Supreme Court um, they're bad. They're, they're, it's it's it, they're they're hard and and often ugly in so many ways. But if Trump just wins outright in November, we're going to have a very different institutional argument about the exact same issue. Interesting point. It's also even if the court rules that he's ineligible to be on the ballot or that it, states can take him off the ballot, mm-hmm. they can say I don't think anyone will buy it. But they can say, well, you know, Congress can, according to the Constitution, can also lift that insurrection title um and and make them viable again and so then as i said the last you know passing a buck back to congress you have to do it by two-thirds so it's very unlikely that that would happen but anyway it's interesting hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, so overall, uh, how do you think the court's doing? What do you mean? I think... It's fair to say that Justice Roberts 
really wanted to sort of help restore the stature of the court, the legitimacy of the court. He wanted a lot more unanimous decisions rather than divided decisions. It was sort of like Bush v. Gore yeah. was this, it was not necessarily a stain, but it was this political albatross in a lot of ways for the court because it eroded faith and trust in the, in the, in the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And it seems like he's had his work cut out for him and that some might even say that he hasn't fully succeeded in his ambitions. Yeah. That's when we start there. Yeah, well, the the court's, you know, approval ratings, so to speak, are, I guess, at a, at a, at a low, maybe an all-time low. Um, I tend to think that's just a fact, uh, that's, that reflects not just a lot of the public dissatisfied with the outcomes of the cases, um, but also the fact that the Supreme Court's in the news probably doesn't do it a whole lot of good in general. The Supreme Court's probably most popular when nobody's thinking about it. So, like we said before, we shouldn't worry about the court being anti-democratic. We shouldn't worry about the court's approval ratings. But I think the point's well taken that it, when Roberts came to office in 2005, um, his goal was to restore public trust in the court in, in, or to help build public trust in the court by making the court more unanimous and less interesting. And um, to quote Shakespeare, some men are born great and some have greatness thrust upon them. And uh, here we are with the court having over and over again things thrust upon it. The court doesn't seek these cases out, but they land there. And they land there ever more quickly because the parts of government that make policy, make policy ever faster, uh, the administrative state, governors, presidents, district judges often. Um, So the court, I think, has its work cut out for it, separate from anything it does. Um, The court is just more quickly embroiled in political controversy. Um, maybe there's some things the court could do to, to sort of adjust to the current environment. You know, I was, I was on the, the president Biden's court packing commission, so to speak. And so I Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time thinking about this, I guess. Um, I think it is interesting to see the court recalibrating a bit. They last year started hearing cases a bit more quickly, but with less use of the shadow docket in some cases. I think that was an interesting adjustment. Um, the justices, I don't keep track of these things, but I get the sense they are giving less public talks than they used to. Um, maybe that'll help. I don't know. I actually kind of wish that justices um, would keep talking in public, but would speak to uh, more to audiences that aren't sort of identified as their side. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Elena Kagan uh, speaking to the the Federal Society and... and um, uh, uh, Justice Thomas speaking to the American Bar Association. Uh, they, they, they don't, and that says as, maybe says as much about audiences as it does about the justices. But I think there's, it would be good for the justices to continue to try to engage the public in, in healthy ways. I feel like that didn't actually answer your question, but um, no, that's, that's right. kind of where I did. Yeah. But so, let, me, let me ask you, come at this from a different direction. So, and not about the court, but a, a, a different thing that I'm sort of fascinated by. So th- this is going to veer slightly into punditry, but I think you, you can handle it. Um, harken back to 2015, 2016. The argument from a lot of leading conservative institutions and organizations was, and conservatives themselves, was Trump's imperfect. He's the lesser of two evils. It's a transactional thing. The, the most symbolic thing in all of this, I mean, the, the sort of quintessential example of this was his lists of who he was going to appoint on the court because conservatives didn't trust him. Right. To, right. And so he consulted with the Federal Society, with the Heritage Foundation, you know, uh, 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 
before the fall and um, and got lists that we could all get excited about, right? And mm -hmm. he basically stuck to the lists, right? At least on the Supreme Court. Yeah. What has happened to a zillion other institutions is that they are facing the problem of Trump has basically converted their rank and file to be first their first loyalties to him mm -hmm. rather than to the organization. And so yeah. like you can see it in the evangelical Christian world, not to say that all evangelical Christians are, are Trumpists now, but lots of institutions have to be, this is what Tim Alberta's book is basically all about, is a lot of these institutions have to be Trumpy because the people in the pews want them to be Trumpy. Mm -hmm. uh, the Heritage Foundation has gone Trumpy because its donors, it, its mass base of donors want it to be Trumpy. Mm -hmm. Fox obviously had these kinds of problems. Now, um, the pro-life movement is struggling with this problem because, you know, Trump is basically saying things that five years ago would have cost him vast numbers of pro-life voters. You know, oh, we can negotiate something that the, the you know, these state bills that have cutoffs at eight weeks or 14 weeks, they're outrageous, blah, 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 blah. We can cut a deal. Um, and now you have people leaking to the New York Times, saying to the New York Times that the Trump, next Trump administration won't want any Federalist Society people because mm -hmm. they don't know what time it is. They want strong, manly, strong like bull lawyers who will do whatever is required. And you can see them every day auditioning on Twitter. Yeah. Um, about, you know, how many people they're going to round up or whatever. So are you at all worried that the Federalist Society's clout, the conservative legal movement's clout, um, is threatened by this same sort of dynamic? Um, because it used to be the Federalist Society was synonymous with the right kind of judges. Yeah. And now the Federalist Society is seen as insufficiently loyal to Trump because his lawyers, too many of his lawyers, wouldn't break the law. And too many of these judges he appointed wouldn't go along with his nonsense. And so now they want different kind of lawyer, a more pragmatic lawyer, let's say. Yeah. What do you think the future of the conservative legal movement is, given this dynamic that I've taken a long time to spell out? Yeah. The... Uh... There were interesting fault lines among, within the conservative legal movement intellectually, even before Trump, right? You had uh, the libertarians arguing that judges should go a lot farther than traditionally conservatives had called for. Um, you've, and now we've got the, the weird Catholic integralist arguments, and I'm Catholic myself, so I can make that, I can say that. Um, it's, there were going to be interesting I think my more brutal disagreements within the conservative legal movement, regardless of Trump. Trump, of course, introduced all the the prudential judgments about what somebody should say um, if they want to be in if they want to be in an administration, if they want to be in a political movement. Um, I honestly don't think Trump and his and MAGA are going to derail the Federal Society. I think the Federal Society's main audience audiences have always been judges and lawyers and that can, conversation is going to continue but I, I mean i do agree that that the sort of the steady pipeline from the federal society membership to um, republican administrations wouldn't be nearly what it is in the in, in, in a trump administration i don't see the the trump legal arguments really changing the ideas in the federal society um, i don't think the federal society like your average federal society speaker is becoming like Trumpier intellectually. Um, I just think that 
conservative lawyers in the Trump era had to be you know, more careful about what they were willing to say out loud if they wanted to go into an administration. That meant, by the way, that some great lawyers got into the administration and did a lot of good. Um, it also meant that, that good lawyers um, uh, didn't stand up and, and, and say important things when they needed to. So the scenario that I worry about, right, is that there's this assumption that, and we see it all over the place in the Republican Party, all over the place in MAGA world, right? I mean, this is like, we now see the House Freedom Caucus furious at uh, Speaker Johnson because Speaker Johnson didn't have the intestinal fortitude and sheer Green Lantern willpower to force Chuck Schumer to agree to the budget that the House Freedom Caucus wanted, and therefore... He's a cuck rhino squish who lacks the spine, the Stalin-like spine that would achieve all the victories that could be achieved if only um, men of strength were in that position. And uh, there's a similar argument in the in this sort of we need to we need lawyers who know what time it is thing. Mm -hmm. There's this like assumption that it was the milk toasty cowardice of these federal society guys to not swing for the fences on things like the Muslim ban or the wall or yeah. whatever. When in reality, the fact that these guys wouldn't make the arguments that Trump wanted was a sign that they were good lawyers because right. they knew they would lose in court. Yeah. And so the scenario that I worry about is you're going to get, you know, these Pam Biondi, you know, Tom Fitton approved hacks who are going to staff a Trump administration and they don't mind losing in court. Because yeah. it's the new front in saying, see, the system is rigged against us. It's the deep states, these deep state judges. We don't need to pay attention to these courts. They're not doing, they're not trying to make America great again. And for them, it's win-win. If they win a court with garbage, it's a success. If they yeah. lose a court, it shows how the system is rigged against people who actually love this country. And we're going to see a new front open up in the undermining of important institutions. And yeah. is there a more rosy scenario to be found in there? No, not really. And I think it's, a lot like, <laughs> it's a lot like how once upon a time being held in contempt by Congress used to be a bad thing. And now right. it's like the best thing that can happen to you. Right. Um, so you can stand up and say, well, I hold this Congress in contempt and so should you. Um, I, I think there's a lot to that, that, that for a lot of this, the arguments are not really about winning or losing in court. They're ultimately winning and losing um, power and power politics. And losing can be, in one form, can be a source of strength. So I agree with you. It's only going to get worse. Um, I, and I do worry about who will be the lawyers in a, in a future Trump administration. Well, they're mostly going to be acting because very few are going to get approved from, you know, the Senate. Um, all right. Well, is there anything we missed that you feel a burning desire to, to get out there and, and set the record straight on? Uh, well, this is also cheerful. It's, 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 how could one not end it here? But I'll just say, you know, I wrote a piece for the dispatch at the end of last term, um, thinking about the, the Harvard case and a few other things and thinking about the path forward. And I think since we're talking about the conservative legal movement, conservative legal ideas, I just want to reiterate, this is a moment where the court in some ways closed one chapter and opened another, right? The, the Dobbs case on abortion, the Harvard case on affirmative action, those were the culmination of decades of debate, and they were like the two main issues that gave rise to the conservative legal movement. Um, we should, and those, those issues will continue, of course, and we're going to have affirmative action cases involving employers, and we're going to have abortion cases involving the, the FDA and, and emergency abortions and so on. 
But I, I tend to think of this as a moment where the real task before the Roberts Court, the Supreme Court after Roberts, is grappling with new issues um, or, or radically different versions of old issues. Now, I tend to obsess over this in the in issues around the administrative state, where after 75 years of the growth of administration, you now see agencies like the Federal Trade Commission or the or the financial regulators really staking out uh, new or different powers, new or different tactics in a way that raise just totally new questions for the court. And we're seeing that around the social media cases and and so on. I, I have to admit, uh, if if I thought the future was going to be another 25 years of just the same constitutional issues over and over again, uh, even I would start to get a little bored. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just endlessly fascinated by the way in which these new issues are arising. The, just the practicalities of government, what, what governors, agencies, and district judges are doing really is in many ways unprecedented um, and is going to put all kinds of new challenges uh, before the Supreme Court. And I, I, I'm very curious to see how the justices' instincts and temperaments um, will translate into decisions in the future. I think it's going to be extremely interesting. And also, I mentioned, I think I mentioned Justice Kagan earlier um, in passing. She's the first progressive justice, the first Democratic appointed justice who really speaks textualist as a first language. Mm-hmm. And so she is driving the conservative justices to have to be more precise in exactly what they're saying, which is going to open up interesting disagreements among the conservative justices, too. Um, and so I, I, I find this very, very interesting. It's all, I think, downstream of what's happening in actual politics and government. It's not the Supreme Court picking these fights, no matter what um, Senator Whitehouse or, or other people say, but it's it's the court having to really grapple with a fast-changing and fundamentally changing styles of government in this country. And so the next few years of this court are going to be extremely interesting, and they're going to be on issues that either we aren't we haven't thought as much about or haven't even occurred to us yet. I mean, it's too bad. I mean, I guess some of the issues have never occurred to us before because we never had to think about whether something was an insurrection or not, uh, and so on. Um, but this is we should think of ourselves as in a as in a new chapter of 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 the American legal constitutional uh, debate. Okay, so that, that raises prompts just two questions for me. One is uh, Mike Gallagher, Congressman Mike Gallagher. Yeah, he and I had discussed favorably the idea of acquiring Greenland. Um, a long time ago on this podcast. Oh, I was I'm I was in favor of it too before you guys yeah. did it on the show. And so the the thing is, once it became Trump's idea, it doomed the already improbable chances of acquiring Greenland because it it made it seem like a a harebrained more harebrained thing than it than it actually is. Yeah, I wonder when Steve Bannon at that first post election CPAC said that his main target in the Trump administration is going to be dismantling the administrative state. Yep. For someone like you, who has been sort of dedicated to, you know, you're sort of like, a, you know, John Winger in, in Stripes, talking about how one of these days Tito Puente is going to die, and you're going to say, I've been listening to him all these years, and I love his stuff. You've been talking in the administration, say it's been, it's been your white whale for a very long time. Yeah. Did did the Trump administration's at least rhetorical adoption of declaring war on administrative state make your life easier or harder? Well, made it harder in some ways, especially around the civil service reforms, where now uh, we can't debate whether to reform civil service without it devolving into a 
question about Schedule F executive order and is President Trump trying to gut all of government just to, to kill mm-hmm. it? So that, that definitely makes the arguments, the, the, the debates harder. Um, I, I should say, by the way, the Trump administration did some great things on regulatory reform, um, and I like all of those. Um, but I'd say the Bannon quote was in some ways very useful to me because it just missed the point. The point is not deconstruction. The point is construction or reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the conservatives' greatest achievements in regulatory reform have never been in tearing down things that existed, but in building up things like OIRA in the White House to be like mm-hmm. the cost-benefit check and balance on agencies. And conservatives who want regulatory reform need to think in terms of construction, not deconstruction. Mm-hmm. New institutions, new rules, new norms, new laws. And, um, and so in some ways, Bannon making that point um, did me a favor because I've, I've been able to sort of tut tut the terminology uh, mm-hmm. ever since. Um, but beyond that, yeah, it's, it, it is unfortunate that so much of what President Trump did or said or what his team did and said um, sort of preemptively discredits uh, a lot of ideas in the eyes of people who aren't following everything closely. Right. And, and I just say, by the way, whether it's regulatory reform or the courts, to get back to the court one last time, you know, my problem is not with the American people disagreeing with the court without reading the court's decisions. Like, we, thank God we live in a country where not everybody has to be a lawyer and a law professor. And I don't think it's an answer to say, oh, you don't like Dobbs? Well, if you haven't read the decision, you're mm-hmm. not allowed to disagree with Dobbs. Like, no, voters are allowed to, to vote and to draw conclusions without having to be experts. The fault that I really see is the, the institutions right around the court and right around, say, the White House and so on, where law professors, journalists, and others, they're the ones who have fallen down on their job of really trying to explain what's happening in these legal cases, and I think in a, in a, a neutral and reasonable way. Um, I, and, and same with the debates around Trump and, and the Trump White House. Um, it's the, the folks who are supposed to be watching these things closely and speaking up. Um, they're the ones who, should, who we should all hold responsible when the public doesn't, in our view, really understand what's happening. I don't blame voters at all. They don't need to be law professors, thank God. There's already enough of those. One of the great examples, I, for reasons of self-harm, I watch MSNBC a lot. And um, the number of people who say, well, Trump has three appointees on that court and they're going to be loyalists or whatever, you know, or imply it. It's so contrary to the actual historical record of where most of Trump's appointees on the Supreme Court and also on the lower courts, they have not been water carriers for Trump. But there is just it's just this glib, easy kind of shot to take. Um, all right, but last question. Yep. Is you, when you were talking about Kagan and textualism and whatnot, um, this is something that has been bothering me ever since those those frauds and advisory opinions discussed it a while back. The phrase is history, text, and tradition, right? That's like sort yeah. of the originalist approach. Yeah, text, history, and tradition. All right, text, history, and tradition. What is tradition doing there that history isn't, or vice versa? What isn't? Isn't it a little redundant? If it's not history, then it's not tradition. And if it's not tradition, it's not history. So what, 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 are, what is a glaring example that distinguishes history from tradition in an, in an, an analytical mode? And it's been bothering me because I think it's a really good question. Oh, that's a good, that is a great question. I, 
Yeah, and you know who's who's great on this actually is our AEI colleagues, uh, Joel Alsay and Will Hahn. So they'd answer better than me. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I, I, there, now you've all be pleased with me because I, I plugged our colleagues. But um, <laughs> but I'd say, yeah, there's obviously a lot of overlap. But I think when people talk about text history and tradition, the history they're talking about is the is like the history of history books, like the narrative account of how things happen and why. Tradition, I'd say, is something um, less analytical. Tradition is the the, the more um, Burkean or Bekelian explanation of things that we have now that we've had for a long time that we can't necessarily rationalize or explain, and we don't feel the need to, right? It's it's things that have practices that have been around for a long time. Uh, and when people talk about text, history, and tradition, they're they're saying, what does the law mean? Why was the law written the way it is? Um, and to what extent does our reading of the law comport with or conflict with the actual traditional practices of the American people? I like that answer because, you know, whenever you say Burkean, I, I like Burkean. But when you actually look at the specific cases, it's very it becomes very difficult to say, like, let me put it this way. It's very difficult to find in my conversations with people an example where history and tradition are in conflict with each other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it becomes this. But then again, there's a long tradition of using tradition in this list. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we'll just keep it. Well, and here's so here's an example. Um, in the First Amendment context, can can a legislative body have a prayer before the city council meeting or something or a prayer before a high school graduation? Text would be the First Amendment. What does the mm-hmm. words of the First Amendment, the establishment of religion, the free exercise of religion, what does that actually mean? History might be, what's the history predating that amendment? Why did they write the amendment the way they did? What's the, what's, what, what's the case law since then? Tradition really sets aside those first two things and says, um, what has been the American tradition, the practice, whether we talked about it in First Amendment terms or not, how have we actually lived our lives? And then when you bring it back to text and history, you say, here's what I think the text means. How confident am I in that? And to what extent would my reading of the text throw out a, a longstanding tradition of American life? I think that's what the folks mean when they mean, when they say text, history, and tradition. All right, to be continued. To be continued. Adam White, uh, there's no truth to the rumors that your parents were huge Tolkien fans and your middle name is The. Um, but uh, it's great to have you on, and uh, I hope you'll come back. And I hope you'll write more for The Dispatch. I, when I told people on Slack today that I was going to be talking to you, uh, several editors were like, tell them to stop turning this down. Uh, no, I, I don't recall hearing from them. I don't know what they're talking about. Uh-huh. Lies. You sit on the throne of lies. Uh, Adam White, thank you so much for doing this. You bet. Okay, so Adam has left the studio um, and uh, always fun talking to him. He's always so calm. He kind of talks like he should be a surgeon who just never gets flustered by like your enormous goiter or, you know, brain hemorrhage or whatever. Um, It's a very, very sort of physician-like bedside manner. Um, And uh, so like, it kind of drives me crazy that I can't get him riled up about anything, but I'm going to keep trying. We are going to do an AMA this week. And I'm going to talk to Guy once I stop pl- blathering on here about setting up the time for it. And um, uh, that's about it. I'll see you next time. No, you won't, Jonah. It's a podcast, but I pardon you.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.